0: Hi everyone. Welcome to this series of interviews done by ARKIN Digital Health. I'm Nadav Shimoni. I'm leading digital health investments for ARKIN. In this series of interviews, we're going to bring leaders and seasoned executives coming from different parts of the U.S. healthcare system, hopefully to allow you, entrepreneurs, investors, and anyone trying to tap into the U.S. healthcare system to gain some insights, some value, some understanding how to do that better. In this episode, we had Michael Greeley with us. Michael has more than 30 years as a professional investor. He is the founding general partner at Flare Capital, perhaps one of the leading early stage dedicated digital health VCs in the US. He's been leading Flair over the last decade after founding and leading another venture capital called Flybridge Capital Partners during the first decade of the millennium and serving as the managing director at GCC Investments before. In our conversation with Michael, we touched the unique characteristics of a dedicated digital health investment firms, what companies should do to improve their chances to raise capital from them, and what should they expect to gain from having them on board. We also touched the current market dynamics around fundraising and how would it affect companies and ways to prevail these challenging times. Let's get started. Michael Greeley, what a pleasure having you with us. Great to see you, my friend, as always. Welcome to the United States. Thank you so much. First of all, we have so much to cover and it's really a privilege to have you with us. Um, But when we are starting these conversations, we usually have this uh, question about meaningful points throughout your journey. I mean, being in the investment side of things for, I would say, three decades now, what were kind of like uh, the meaningful, I don't know, two points in your career so far that influenced you in a meaningful way? Uh, I, th- I think what I always reflect on is I I never thought I'd be an
1: investor. I was an organic chemist in college, took my medical school exams, and for a whole host of reasons, ended up in business school, quite, quite, uh, was quite confounded by that. And I really fell in love with um, this entrepreneurial community and the ability to Um, have impact in healthcare. I have the great fortune of living in Boston, which is probably the second um, dimension to to my journey, which is, you know, really this amazing uh, community that intersects life sciences and technology. And so when when I um, set out to start this fund, which we're really privileged to have you and Arkin as as an important investor, uh, it was really dedicated on the focus of the business of healthcare. And, you know, Boston really reflects uh, that depth. And, you know, so a whole host of unrelated factors contributed to where I am today meeting with you. So it, it's a great privilege. But I
0: should have been a doctor. You should have not. I think uh, <laughs> what you're doing is, is terrific. And I mean, you are essentially, if I can call it a dedicated digital health investor. I mean, a health tech investor, you've been in focusing on on health tech companies for more than a decade now, I would say, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Just, I mean, for for our listeners, for entrepreneurs, are there any threshold criteria when thinking about dedicated digital health funds? What can improve their chances when they are approaching you, um, you know, to get initial interest and obviously eventually to get an investment?
1: Yeah. And I think it's important um, maybe for the listeners just to give a little perspective on the landscape and why I thought, our market opportunity was to create a dedicated, independent uh, venture firm that had scale to it. We, we now manage about a billion dollars, and I helped start the firm about eight years ago. And about half the capital come from uh, approximately 30 strategics. The other half come from terrific investors. And, and actually, Arkin is, is kind of straddles that line because it's we have a number of family offices, sovereign wealth funds. Um, in the venture capital industry, there was, I perceived, and, you know, there may be 1500 venture firms across all industries in the United States, that there was pressure on venture firms to become much more experts sort or of narrow and deeper. And I thought there was an underserved class of entrepreneurs focused on the business of healthcare. So we invest in software and services. Um, and, you know, if I were you know, an entrepreneur wanting to raise capital for a consumer internet company, there'd be several hundred firms to approach. So I thought there was an interesting market opportunity and the competitive landscape. And I think it's informative for the entrepreneurs listening as to how they might go about raising capital. I think of it as, is sort of a triangle, you know, and there are three points, obviously on the triangle. One is they're strategic investors and they have, you know, wonderful assets and, and uh, abilities and, but, you know, they have an agenda. Uh, there's a there's a group of investors and this is what i saw years ago and i think it's it's you know still the case that are large uh, multi-strategy multi-sector multi-office funds and they're amazing and they may have a dedicated healthcare tech team and then there's a set of investors that i think um, serve an incredibly important role and on-ramp and they tend to be more incubators and accelerators you know and all of them have their pros and cons, uh, the incubators and accelerators tend to be uh, quite limited in how much capital and support they can provide after that first round of, of, of financing. And so I think for entrepreneurs, you know as you look at that landscape, how do you um, go about raising capital? It's just it's important to understand, I think who the providers of capital can be and what they can bring and what their limitations are to, to help you scale your businesses. And so I thought there was a market opportunity to build a firm uh, that, as I said, was independent uh, and of some size. And so, uh, you know, we think of ourselves as the invited guest of the entrepreneur, the partner uh, over the life cycle of the company. And so, you know, we'll reserve adequate capital for each round of financing and we want to be additive and helpful. Um And, you know, maybe that's not appropriate for every company, but, you know, we think more often than not, that's what entrepreneurs were looking for.
0: Understood. And I mean, I would just add that for us being associated with Flair is a great honor. And I mean, the the approach you mentioned that, but the way you work with your strategic LPs and the way you add value to your portfolio companies by interacting with this community you created, I think there are not so many funds who are able to do that. And this is simply magnificent. So, you know. Yeah, and
1: and as we all know the the healthcare industry is so complicated. So, you know, we're really privileged to have um, of the 30 strategics, more than about half are hospital systems, are household names. Uh, We have a handful of uh, insurance uh, companies, payers. We have some pharma. uh, We have some device companies, some lab companies, the two big healthcare retailers. And so I, I think there's there's assets there and there are relationships we can bring to our early stage companies that, you know, I think could be quite helpful. We, we may touch on this. The, the landscape today, it's a complicated time in the market. Uh, we've had a really a, a, an unprecedented um, inflow of capital. We arguably maybe have created too many companies over the last, uh, ironically, as is, is devastating as the pandemic has been for literally billions of people in our sector. It's been a massive accelerant. And, and so it's hard for any one company to get recognized in the market. And what we hope to do, and, and obviously having Arkin shoulder to shoulder with us, um, is to introduce uh, entrepreneurs at the highest levels of some of the most important organizations, our LPs. N- not to give a commercial for us touch about a quarter of all healthcare spend every year in the United States. So, you know, there's undoubtedly potential customers and partners in our LP base. And, and, you know, we think deeply about how do we make those points of connection? Cause it's really hard to, to pull, um, to get entrepreneurs and audience in front of these companies right now, just given how many companies have been created.
0: Yeah. So much noise in the system.
1: Yeah. And just th- over the last 10 years, in the U.S., uh, we've created kind of 350 to 450 companies every year. In 2021, you know, it was more than 800 companies this year. It's going to be a little bit down from that, but this year will be a, the second most active year. And so, you know, there's just been this explosion of of, of companies. I, I happen to believe the sector can ultimately support that. Probably not 800, but um, you know, the pandemic highlighted just Extraordinary issues around the—we uh, all know this—the systems had to go virtual, intelligent, predictive, uh, on-demand, real-time—all these wonderful attributes very, very quickly. So it's exposed all these terrific market opportunities, and so it's probably it probably needed to have more uh, entrepreneurs in the market. But I think maybe we've overshot, and so there'll be some rationalization over the next, you know, twelve to twenty-four months, which you know to probably is healthy for the market. Uh, undoubtedly, and I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, it doesn't feel like we'll go back to 350 companies created every year. It doesn't feel like we should stay at eight or 900. So it'll kind of settle out
0: somewhere in the middle. For sure. And and maybe switching gears for a second and, and honing into Israeli companies, which I think, you know, you had the opportunity to interact with a lot of Israeli companies And we often speak about the differences between Israeli companies and U.S.-based companies. And many of our listeners are either entrepreneurs or investors or people coming from the Israeli kind of like healthcare scene. So, I mean, maybe as a first question, I'm I'm just curious, what do you think is the difference between an Israeli company, a company that was started in Israel to a U.S.-based company? I mean, for better and worse, and the idea here, you know, is to provide value for our listeners. So you know, things, you know, don't be, don't be shy of, of criticism, I guess that's what I'm trying to yeah, say.
1: Yeah, it'd be hard to find criticism. I, I think that the challenge for the Israeli entrepreneurs is trying to access either the U.S. venture capital market or the U.S. Uh, kind of commercial market, from a, a company specific, you obviously I, I think every U.S. investor has enormous regard for the technical capabilities. Um, and oftentimes the Israeli entrepreneurs that we deal with sort of lead with their technical capabilities you know the irony is um and it's very impressive the irony of the risk we take in the healthcare tech space isn't necessarily technical it's really product market fit you know every customer has its own unique set of of issues that they're confronting in their local markets and so i think that the opportunity the challenge um for Israeli entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs is to really be very focused on what the product market fit issues are for some of the big U.S. Uh, customers, and and it's and it's less an issue of does the technology work. It's have you built the right product for the right customer at the right time in the, in the market development, uh, and and so there's there's no criticism, but it is um, it's putting a much more of a commercial lens on the opportunity. And less of a technical lens, I think all of us in the states assume that the technology will be world class and it's it's not an issue if the product works is it is the product highly relevant um for the moment and you know I have some thoughts about where i I see successful Israeli entrepreneurs breaking through that noise is they've created um you know sort of interesting advisory boards that have people that we recognize, and so oftentimes um uh, the Israeli entrepreneurs will surround these companies with world-class Israeli successful executives and technologists, um, but introducing uh, you know other you know people from the states or from other or from Europe that we also would would have more familiarity with. I think would be helpful to you know. There's there's some positive associative values for that, um, and then you know to the extent you can secure. You know, through the Arkan type relationships, access, direct access to US investors, that, you know, Nadav, whenever you call me with an idea or an opportunity, we take that very, very seriously. And so, you know, like anything in in, in business, it's, you know, we if you're one or two degrees separated, it makes it just that much, much easier. Um and, and so I guess for me it's the lack of familiarity is People should just be very thoughtful about how do you quickly navigate that. And as I said at the outset, this kind of triangle of of investors, I, I would caution entrepreneurs, Israeli entrepreneurs, to to do much more work up front and not spend time with investors that are not likely to convert. Don't don't reach out to the incubators because they're not you know they have a very localized mandate around job creation. For instance, I, I wouldn't spend a lot of time calling on them because they're just not looking for those types of. Uh, opportunities
0: understood and appreciate you know the comments regarding arkin and not taking that for granted for a second i mean maybe as a follow-up question to what you just mentioned i think there is you know a bunch of, of very decent israeli investors and many israeli companies are, are taking the first like institutional money from israeli investors and then going and, and trying to push the way forward in the U S market, which also includes approaching U S investors, you know, for a follow-up round, what do you think companies should consider or make sure kind of like what, what kind of boxes they should check before reaching to U S investors? I mean, like flair or others. Yeah. And I, I, again, I'm not pandering to you, but the
1: fact that you now live in the United States or you're spending a big chunk of time here, uh, that is a very powerful endorsement. So if, when you call, we, we sit up and take notice of that. So there's a vetting that, that, um, that is implied with your endorsement. Uh, you know, I think f- for, for us, for, for the Israel entrepreneur, I'd say, or for any entrepreneur, put yourself in the shoe, shoes of the investor. So what, what's my internal dialogue? I'm looking at this company and I need to see a path to making three to five times on our invested capital. With not Herculean assumptions, and that doesn't just mean on this specific round, but it's really over the life of the journey, the arc of the journey. And so be just reflective on what that implies. If the company needs to raise a hundred million dollars of capital, the outcome needs to be you know a billion, two billion dollars. And is that something that you're building? Um, and you know be empathetic to what the constraints of the investor are. Um and it doesn't necessarily mean I need to get the absolute highest price on the first round, but I need to build a syndicate of investors that have interest, alignment, and capacity. And, and so I, I guess I would ask any entrepreneur just to uh put yourself in our shoes. What's the problem we're trying to solve? And then separately put yourself in the shoes of the customers and just have a really we we uh, nothing unique, we call it voice of the customer. When we do our diligence calls, and maybe we make 20 or 30 diligence calls, half of them are really around voice of the customer and be really articulate on what that means and play that back to us and develop a set of references um, that you you could expose to us and people we could quickly access that would be maybe more familiar to us that can echo what you're telling us voice of the customer is. And I, I think ultimately our companies that are successful or that are scaling they, they tend to accomplish two um, two milestones. They can reduce clinical or administrative costs in the near term, and that tends to be one or two budget cycles. And they have, as important, maybe even more important, they can tell an outcome story, and that tends to take three or four or five years. With both of those, it has to have data and attribution.
0: First of all, this is super helpful, and I think you're articulating the evidence. in a a clear, visible, meaningful way is so important. And, you know, there is a notion that suddenly companies needs to show clinical evidence or cost reduction evidence and not just to claim they're doing that, which maybe wasn't necessarily the case in any conversation during the last two years. Uh, But essentially in healthcare, I think that was out there forever.
1: The tricky thing is around attribution. And any of us, as consumers of healthcare products and services are touched by a lot of different vendors and, and, and companies. And so can you, as the entrepreneur, can you really articulate back to us as investors why your product or service can take credit for the impact? And that, that's a hard one. The data, you know, you'll build that over time, and we'll look at the early data. It'll be limited. We we get that. It's the attribution. We'll get into it, but I think what's interesting is as we move into these more virtual care models, attribution in some cases is easier to claim, but in some cases it it starts to get harder to claim because it's not really clear who actually is responsible for the impact.
0: Yeah, lots of uh, factors within this equation and just claiming your factor, your variable is the one who's shifting the equation uh, sometimes can be challenging. Um, and I also think, I mean, in terms of contribution, just to mention in this podcast, which we focus on kind of like the business side of digital health, which I think correlates, you know, with many things we're speaking about, we had people coming from different angles of the industry and many, I think, throughout the episodes so far, people have repeatedly said that if you have this pilot with, um, I would say, a leading academic medical center, it's not necessarily... And evidence for your product market fit because there are not so many of these in the market as opposed to maybe second tier hospitals, which are many more if you're selling to providers in this, in this example. so I That's think- right.
1: That's right. And there is a temptation to, we have a number of AMCs as investors in our funds. It's a temptation to spend a lot of time with them and get their logo. Um, very rarely do those pilots convert to be substantial businesses. So I take your point. There may be other participants in the healthcare ecosystem. You know, these novel primary care companies that have that have become quite prevalent. The big payers that that would be easier, not easy, but easier, uh, and will show more kind of predictability. For, for you know, of the of the attributes, the milestones I was pointing to cost reduction and outcomes. I, you know, what I didn't lead with was that. The products or services need to have my customers' revenues increase or grow much faster. Now, revenue is helpful, but it for us, it's really telling the narrative around ultimately costs and outcomes and revenues will follow.
0: Understood. Maybe going to a different topic, which we might have touched a bit, but I mean, just to mention you have a very active blog, which I could not recommend more. I mean, for our listeners to read. As as someone who has been following the market and has been in the market for three decades now as an investor, this is, I'm not sure if we can call it a downturn or entering a recession or a difficult time, but definitely something not regular going on in the last couple of months and probably going to see it evolving. What are you currently advising to your portfolio companies? I mean, these days.
1: So we we went through um, we've done this twice now in two years. In April of 2020, when we were all shutting down, we went through a a crisis scenario planning and we wanted to look at which companies needed to raise capital in the next 12 months. And then what can you do to extend the runway? And those were some very painful decisions. Fortunately, you know, the the correction took about six weeks. Um, So earlier this year, we went through a similar planning exercise. And I think we were quite adept at raising capital at attractive prices, large amounts of capital at attractive prices last year. Uh, A lot of those crossover investors have left the market. And so I think you're absolutely right that the fundamentals have changed. Um, In 2020, uh, this is US healthcare tech investing, it was about 14 billion last year, it was about 29 billion. This year, we just saw the third quarter data. It looks like if you annualize it, it's tracking to be 17 or 18 billion. That'll still be the second most uh, active year, and so it is clearly down. It's going to be down probably a third, um, but it's to me, it's not a crisis. I think the, there is an implication over the next six to 12 months that those several hundred companies that were created are all coming back to the market and. Um, They'll, at a minimum, many of them won't be able to raise capital at similar or higher prices. That'll be a painful reconciliation. And some of them, it may be more binary where they just can't raise capital. And And so why do I say that? You know, any financing round tends to give a company 12 to 18 months of runway. Obviously, it's dependent on each of the cases. Um, and... There's supposed to be an aligned perspective um, between the investor and the entrepreneur, what you're going to accomplish over that next 12 to 18 months. My suspicion is a lot of them are coming back to the market, not with an incomplete story. Um, either the team isn't fully built out or the product wasn't fully built or revenues are you know not what everybody expected. Um, investors in the background are trying to triage uh, that we have 35 portfolio companies. Um, We have only a finite amount of capital in any given fund, and so you're you have to allocate to those that have the most potential. Um, That process we're going through right now, and my suspicion is we'll kind of wrap up in the next three to four months uh, because all these companies are coming back to market given how much was raised in 2021. Um, I I don't think it'll be a bloodbath. I I actually am quite optimistic that many of these companies will. will persevere and get through this this window what we're really watching are when are the later stage investors coming back and many of the very prominent names that we are household names now publicly said at the beginning of this year that they're going to take a breather they're going to sit out of this sector for you know until the end of this year i think that there's enough data across all these companies we've created over the last 10 years, that these business models create economic value, in addition to solving really important problems, but that their economic value proposition is compelling. And to some extent, um, it's about absolute returns, obviously, but it's also about relative returns. And what I'm looking for is these larger investment uh, funds that can invest in any sector, do they see the healthcare tech ses- sector as a relatively attractive space? And will they come back? My strong suspicion is they will come back. I hope we don't see another year like $29 billion invested because there isn't a capital absorption issue. If too much comes in it too quickly, that's never ultimately healthy. But I think the sustainable rate will be kind of 10 to 15, 12 to 17 billion a year. And I so why do I, I say that? I'll draw an analogy just quickly. Um, and I know Nadav, you've probably heard me say this, and it's not a great analogy, but directionally, I think it's it's pretty interesting. The U.S. advertising industry uh, over the last twenty years has been rearchitected through interesting new technologies, mobility, high-performance computing, and I think we've created ten plus trillion dollars of uh, equity value that were companies that were once venture capital backed—Google, Facebook, Twitter—you know, hundreds, thousands of companies. That industry is call it $275 billion of spend. The healthcare industry in the United States is 17 times larger and it's being re-architected. So in the short term, I'm a little nervous. Um, Last year, we made three actually relatively modest investments. Uh, You know, as you're a partner with us, we are very excited about our new fund for the next two years that we're investing at a really interesting time in the market. Obviously, our uh, early stage investments, you know, we don't expect uh, that they'll be mature companies for five to seven years. So I'm I'm really making a bet on what does the next decade look like, not what the next quarter looks like. And so as I reflect on it, I just think the next couple of decades will look back and say the pandemic, again, as terrible as it was for the whole world, billions of people, was a massive accelerant. It's kind of the knee of the curve, and that this sector, long term. Is just an exceptional place to be spending time as an investor, as an entrepreneur. It listen; these companies are hard. You know, it's not like building a Google or a Facebook. I mean, those were hard companies. It's not like building a consumer app. It is a very hard journey, but just over time, you know, I think these business models have the promise of great economic value creation, and therefore will be really productive. And so, I, I couldn't be more excited about the longer term. You just got to kind of you know tap dance through this market turmoil we went from you know a decade plus of capital being free and plentiful to capital now having a cost and and less plentiful it doesn't mean the businesses are going to be bad businesses by any stretch of the imagination
0: no, i think i mean looking at the fundamentals eventually i think that's that's the core right and and you mentioned this notion of a journey and and the need to be patient. And and I think there were a couple of or, or types of investors who went into healthcare during, you know, COVID who were a bit more optimistic in terms of like timelines, but eventually, you know, changing things in healthcare just takes, you know, it takes time, right? Uh,
1: yeah, and that second milestone that I keep alluding to around outcomes,
0: by definition,
1: that does take time. That takes a few years at a minimum to show outcomes that are sustainable, enduring. And, you know, that, but you're absolutely right. And if you're sophisticated about what you're doing and you're thoughtful, uh, and I think you have to have a really aligned group of partners, both investors, um, business partners, channel partners that, that, you know, I don't want to sound so uh, naive to think that this is easy. It's not easy. Um, but you can create magic if you are really thoughtful at the beginning of the journey
0: double click on on the digital health software and services industry, I mean, in terms of particular areas which you might think would prevail during this, I don't know, next three to five years. I mean, are there any specific areas you're currently excited about? I mean, so much is going on with health systems, hospitals right now. They are operating under different types of constraints, pairs are changing their models, becoming more providers, uh, you know, the the retailers are coming in, so many different trends converging into this software and services uh, industry. Yes. Are there any particular, you know, places you're, you know, thinking about that might create opportunities in the foreseeable future?
1: Um, yeah, there are, we have five themes. I won't bore you with the themes. Uh, there were themes we articulated eight years ago, and we think they're as relevant today, if not more so. But I I think particularly in light of the system having to be re-architected so dramatically, uh, we continue to be very excited about a number of virtual care models, um, and they tend to be focused on uh, very acute populations where you can show real, real impact and cost savings. And so you'll continue to see us make those types of investments. We have one in the suicide ideation space and GI space, um, and, and you know, I could go on and on. We've probably made, just in the last year or so, half a dozen of these virtual care investments. So those will continue to be an important part of, of, of our work. We're about to close something in the autism space um, where it's an identifiable, expensive population. Um, a, a, a second theme that I wish we had more, frankly, exposure to, we have some great companies, but around data liquidity, particularly around pharma, and some of the budgets there just so resilient uh, and so we have an emerging theme around pharma tech that you know obviously it's not novel, but we think that there's some really, really important problems to be solved um, in in the world of pharma from a data liquidity standpoint. And then there you know, maybe there's a, a whole totally different vector. Um, we We have this great privileged relationship with thirty of the most important healthcare companies in the United States. A number of them have assets, and and you've seen us do this, Nadav, where we co-create companies with them where they're contributing assets. And we've done that now seven times in the last two years. And, you know, it's a little bit of an inversion for the venture model. And maybe the entrepreneurs in the audience um, may not like to hear this, where typically we start with an entrepreneur who's brilliant, passionate, provide them a little bit of capital, they build a product provide more capital, and then they start to scale the business. This is we start with kind of the product, and we're looking for the entrepreneur to help run it. And what's interesting about that is the product, the asset is built in an environment that's you know fully adherent to all the right protocols and best practices. And it's, it's just, I, there's an, I think there's an acknowledgement amongst a lot of these large incumbents that they have significant problems to solve. And they don't have the internal, frankly, management skills uh, or the clock speed to build a product that solves their you know, urgent needs. And so that that's not a specific technology. It's a type of investing that we've gotten quite excited about where we're co-creating. And I know we've talked to you about a handful of those. I think there's no shortage of interesting kind of stranded assets out there that just need to be properly capitalized and managed.
0: And, and I think at least from my end, it seems again, regarding this point of product market fit, right? How can you reach a product market fit? Sometimes you need to start from the product, like within the system. Sometimes you need to work with the entrepreneur or, or to help uh, an idea to shape up into a product that has a fit. But I mean, this notion of, not creating something that people won't eventually buy or need, which we see, I mean, too often, right? How to avoid that. So maybe, I mean, as a last question, I mean, we see a lot of companies starting to get some signals and there is no objective definition, at least in my my understanding of a product market fit. I mean, you can think about different criterias, but how can you be kind of like more... Confident that you are on your path to reach this product market fit. What type of of you know tools people can use to be kind of like uh, I would say more optimistic about their chances to reach this product market fit?
1: Yeah, and that that's the holy grail. And so one of the things that we we press very hard on is literally just around pipeline management. As a for instance, how long do things sit in the pipeline, and if they're not converting? You know, at the outset, you say to the potential customer, what is the process? Date certain. What are the, the gates? And if it kind of languishes in the pipeline, well, you may not have f- nailed product market fit. Um, and it's, it's obviously a hard thing to do. And these big companies reorganize, reorganize constantly. So it's always a new sponsor. And, um, but I think it, the burden on the entrepreneur is literally to hover over these accounts and you're checking with them. Weekly, you know, every other week, and if you get any indication that it's a, it's kind of gone off the rails, either be introspective and say, hey, there's something in my offering that's not resonating, or this isn't the right customer, and I should move on. And so I have this anxiety right now. You know, we have open enrollment where, uh, you know, the the U.S. consumer is starting to make healthcare insurance purchase decisions. That over the last two or three years, a lot of the big self-insured And a lot of the big payers have been running literally hundreds of pilots in parallel. And they're now having to make real decisions around what to include, for instance, in the benefit design. And a lot of entrepreneurs say, oh, I have this really interesting pilot at ABC Insurance Company or ABC Employer. And if it doesn't convert on this calendar, listen really carefully to that. And obviously, the most precious thing entrepreneurs have is their time. And just don't spend time on it. And so we really look hard at how long has something been sitting in the pipeline? You know, when when did you last touch the the client? Ultimately, these markets are massive. They're measured in hundreds of billions of dollars. So there's a client for almost any product. Just get to the right client and don't don't be misled by. um, And it's not like they're they're uh, doing it deliberately. It's just the these processes are are so cumbersome. And just look closely at the passage of time, and 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 interpret that for what it is. That it may actually not ever convert, or you may have something wrong in your offering.
0: I think working on your pipeline in a in a diligent but yet I would say realistic way is so important. Yeah, and, and I guess you know maybe concluding with that um, offering the idea of you need to listen and you need to gather the signals and then you need to present the evidence in a coherent way. Uh, I think this is something so important for entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah. Again, it's all around the voice of the customer and and maybe just, just one other quick observation along those lines, the other customer is your investor. And, you know, listen really carefully, uh, to what the market is saying. So if you raise capital at a hundred dollars valuation and the markets at $50, you know, raise capital at $50. For us, it's all about clean terms. So you retain the alignment. Um, Don't, you know, let liquidation preference and multiples come into the equation. Keep the alignment and live to fight another day. And it's ultimately about the the exit value and not these interim rounds. Um, You may never have been worth $100 when you raised it last year. And conversely, you don't think you're worth 50, but live to fight another day. And raise raise capital on good terms,
0: and hopefully reach the finish line. Right. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Terrific. And and and
1: partner with Arkin
0: <laughs> and Flair. The, Definitely those Flair. Those words of advice. Michael Greeley, it's been so much fun and such a privilege having you with us. I hope to see you in Israel soon. I hope to have flair investing in Israeli companies. We will do whatever it takes to make that happen.
1: I can't wait. Well, I know I'm seeing you in Boston in a couple weeks and I'm seeing you in Israel in a couple months. So look forward to both
0: meetings. Same here. Same here. Thank you so much.
1: All right. Be well, my friend.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and gained some real value from it, and we would love to have your thoughts, feedback, and anything else. Links are available in the description. See you next time.